Welcome to episode 57 of Greater Than Code. I'm your co-panelist, Rain Henricks, and I am happy to introduce Janelle Klein. Hi, and I'd like to introduce Jessica Kerr. Good morning, and I am really excited to introduce our guest today. She is Christina Murillo. Christina is an information security and tech nerd with a background in enterprise identity and access management, network administration, and information security. By day, she works as a senior program manager on the Azure Information Protection Cloud and Engineering team at Microsoft. You might know her as the co-founder of a community for women of color in tech, which produced some wonderful stock photos of like women of color on computers, which was remarkably lacking in the world. And it's a great resource. Thank you for that, Christina. You're welcome. But today we are here to talk about many things, starting with what is your superpower and how did you acquire it? My superpower. My superpower is multitasking. Really? Yeah. And how did I acquire it? Um, Just being in the struggle, you know, not by choice. You are a mother. Yeah. Among many other things. It, It came about before I was a mother. Back in my college days, I was actually working on two degrees simultaneously while working full time. So that's where, you know, my ability to multitask came about. How do you define multitasking? Well, I think for me, it's it's the ability to like shift your focus or slice up your focus um, and priorities into different chunks, kind of like a pizza. So you have a full pie, right, of things to do, uh, being able to accomplish pretty much all of those things. So um, a real world example would be like working full time studying for, you know, like um, professional development, so to speak, um, having more than one child, a husband, a household, and having to do everything in between, right, that comes along with that. And only having one you. So unfortunately, I don't have a droid yet, right, (laughs) to help me out. So I just have to figure that out on my own. You are into automation, though. Yeah, I mean, I love to automate things or processes that, you know, don't need to be manual. You know, for example, like you can, if, if I can automate emails to go out or automate, I don't know, even use Alexa to remind me of things. Like I love those things <laughs> just because there's so much to do. One of my positions, my my job was to deploy a, an identity and access management application globally across an enterprise. And part of that was automating their onboarding, uh, offboarding and access request processes. So taking them from, you know, phone call to help desk, help desk to data entry, taking that from that to click approve done, right? Which, you know, saves time. Um, more productive and saves money in the end. Yeah, totally. I like it at enterprise scale when a task is repeated so many times that obviously you should automate it. But I also like your examples of things that only you do and yet automating helps you be able to do more things. Exactly. I think it's it's important to when you think about um, establishing a new process or uh, revising a process to start from the from the beginning of that thought process of your thought process. Think can this become a repeatable process or is this a a repeatable process? And that's how you know you can automate it or not, right? I mean, it doesn't apply everywhere and to all the things, but wherever it applies, I think it's extremely helpful. Ooh, ooh. That ties into, in the last show, Karanda was talking about making systems for herself. And the first step is like writing down what she does and making it repeatable, even if she's the one who's repeating it. And then she can ask someone else to repeat it for her. Right. And I would say that's the form of automation, right? I mean, I don't think that, I think we like to tie these words to um, systematic processes or applications, but that's a form of automation, right? As long as I'm not doing it and someone else is doing it for me, I'm I'm automating my processes, right? Delegation is a form of automation. That's interesting. Exactly. Why not? So in right? my mind, when it comes to automation, there's, I'm, I'm curious sort of what your process is. In my mind, you start out with sort of writing a script for a human to do, and then the human does the things in the script. And then you make a computer do some of those things, and the human now tells the computer to do the things. And then eventually the computer does all of the things, and then you can just have the computer do the thing automatically somehow. What process do you go through when you're, you know, from start to finish, when you have some manual task that no one really knows how to do and you want to turn it into a thing that a computer does for you? 
Well, from experience at that company where I had to automate their processes, I first tried to understand what the process is today. Like, what is the current state? How do you do this today? Whoever the human is that's actually doing it, right? And I look at all the stops. So step one, stop, step two, stop, step three, stop, right? And what is required from a manual perspective? I try to understand what systems we have in place today that can help me clean this up, clean the manual process up, right? So it's pretty much like doing discovery. I I learned this new word last week, reconnaissance. (laughs) So I'm going to start using that in my vocabulary because I think it's awesome. So it's kind of like doing that. You have to do that recon. You have to first understand how is this thing done to then be able to give the computer instructions. I always like to say, if you don't understand what you're doing, the tech is not going to help you, right? It's it's pretty much like people that like to throw a technical solution on top of a, of a broken process to try to fix something. You just end up getting garbage in, garbage out, right? The tech doesn't fix it. So I think it's like a combination of both. So that's usually my process. I do a lot of like discovery first to understand the problem, understand how I can fix the problem first manually, and then how I can fix it via automating. It's interesting that you were talking about how if you don't know what the process is and you try to tell a computer to do it, the computer will just do the wrong thing, right? Like the right. the greatest, you know, blessing and curse of computers is they do exactly what you tell them to do. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. And the hard part of programming is figuring out what you want the computer to do. Like telling it is easy after that, relatively. Exactly. I think that's the hardest part, right? Like understanding and then translating that. Not Not to say that like, you know, coding it is not difficult because it can be in certain situations, but depending on how intense the solution is, it shouldn't be, but it can be. But I feel like thinking, you know, using our human brain to think these things out or through, that's hard. Yeah, I think that's beautiful. Like, I mean, just um, talking about the first step is to understand the problem and figure out what problem are you trying to solve and then come up with a way to first solve it manually and then automate it. And, you know, if you, if you jump too fast to implementing the solution, it's really easy to miss the problem altogether. Yep. And we see this often, (laughs) even today, right? Yeah. And if nothing else, if you've written down the repeatable process, even if you still do it, every one of those things you wrote down as a decision, you don't have to make again. Exactly. Yeah. It's also interesting to me how valuable human judgment still is, despite computers being able to do things a million times faster than us. Exactly. They can do the wrong thing over and over and over. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I don't think we're at the, we're not there yet with like artificial intelligence, you know, where computers can make sound judgment. I think we will be, uh, and I know they're working on this, but we're just not there yet. Yeah. One of the hardest things for me is trying to, automate processes that require human judgment. And usually when that's the case, it's because there's something that you can't tell a computer to do, which means it's hard. There's there's a lot of factors that go into making that judgment. It might be hard to just say, here's a, here's a checkpoint, talk to a human. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but one thing that we forget sometimes about automation is it is totally fine to use humans to do what they're good at. Like, hey, I'm ready to do this deployment. Somebody watch these graphs for me. Yeah, and I mean, let the human make the decision that people need to. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's not to say that you're gonna. You may not automate an entire uh, life cycle, right? It could be that there may need to be human input at some point. Yeah, right? and so then there the, may be like first stop human, then you know steps two through ten, you know computer, and then step eleven maybe output human. Like go pick up that paper at the printer. I don't know. Just an example. Yeah. And then the automation becomes about supplying the human with the reminder, like Alexa will do. And also, if it's a decision that we need them to make, all the supporting information. Exactly. Exactly. And sometimes that's what it takes. It can take that type of shape where you're like, it's half human, half a machine, like in stages. So stage one can, can be like, you know, human and machine. And then stage two, maybe all machine, no human. So... Yeah. Just make can take different shapes, I guess. Yeah, because we can work best when we do it together. <laughs> I want to get back to the multitasking as humans thing. I had a I had a question. When you talk about multitasking, you're talking about doing a lot 
of different things in one life. What like time scale are you multitasking in? Are you doing a lot of things in a week, in a day, in a minute? I would say all of the above. And if we're going to break it down granularly, it's in a day and by hour, right? So I rely heavily on my calendar um, or calendars, right? I've tried to merge um, instead of keeping a personal and a business. I know a lot of people like to separate it, but I like to see my full day at a glance. So what I do is that I just kind of input most of my personal to-dos and tasks and reminders in my business calendar, my work calendar, so that I can see my entire day and plan it out by hour. So I'm not extremely like like one of these people that just plan every second of their day, but I, I try to do it in like half hour to 60 minute slots. So I know, okay, I've allotted two hours for, let's say this conversation today, but I know that at three, I have a meeting, right? And I know that at 3.30, I have to pay a bill. And then I know that at five, I have to remember to book that appointment, right? So that's... I, that's kind of my process and flow. And that's what allows me to multitask. So I can do, you know, a little bit of personal, some, you know, business throughout the day so that I can focus and be productive and then sprinkle some more personal around my afternoon, evening and stuff like that. Do you have any suggestions for becoming better at context switching? I was going to ask that same thing. (laughs) Well, essentially, I was just sitting here listening to this thinking, wow, this is like a major superpower. Because I I imagine if I like tried to apply what you just described to my life, I would like explode. (laughs) Because I'm so not used to operating that way with larger tasks that require a lot more focus. So I'm, I'm just curious what type of impacts you've seen from shifting focus specifically on restarting a task and refreshing your brain with that context? Or are there things that you do to make that brain refresh easier? Yeah, I mean, I wouldn't say that it's all easy. I think it is difficult. I've grown used to it. I think at times I make sure that I do take a break. Like, I think that's super important to me, like actually taking my time for lunch. Because what I notice is that when I try to multitask too much and let's say I'm eating while I'm working, I just get burnt out. So my goal every day is to try to avoid getting burnt out because I feel it. Like it it really, it really takes a toll. So try to take a break. Like I just... I work at my own pace. I think it's important to understand that like, yes, you have the schedule, but you may not accomplish everything that you plan today. And that's okay. Unless you have a deadline where something like if you have to pay your credit card bill today, because they're going to charge you a late fee, then yeah, get that done today. But if it's something that can wait till Friday or maybe has like a, you know, you're free to do it on Sunday because you have more time on Sunday then be flexible. You know, I just think it's important to be flexible and not be so hard on yourself. That's what's worked for me, right? It doesn't make me feel like a failure if I can't accomplish everything on my to-do. A friend of mine is actually doing it in, she she went um, analog. So she's doing it on like a notebook and she carves out her day in squares, like by priority level. That's a lot for me. I'm just like, I'm not there yet. So she's very, very strict and disciplined. I just try to play it by ear and see how my, how my like flow with the day, so to speak, by just keeping my top priority items top of mind. It's interesting for me because when I was younger, I used to think that making a reminder for myself was a sign of weakness. Like my brain should just remember all the things at all times. And as I've grown older, I realize that I need that help. I need the assistance to be able to keep everything, all of the plates spinning at the same time. And if I don't, so like I've been in a situation where I've come from a meeting directly into another meeting and I'm the one owning the agenda for the meeting, but I don't remember what the meeting's supposed to be about because I didn't take good (laughs) notes or like there wasn't a clear agenda set and I just floundered for the first five minutes and it was a really bad meeting. Yeah, that's difficult. That's why I try to like, first of all, I never try to book back-to-back meetings. Sometimes it happens, but what I do try is I try to take, even if it's just like bullet points, I tend to over-prepare. I'm a little bit type A when it comes to stuff like that. I don't like to get caught like that. So I try to prepare as best as I can. For some reason, I don't like to wing it. You know what I mean? Like I like a little bit more structure. I can wing it, but it just takes too much energy. (laughs) So I like to like be a little bit more set up. But I totally understand what you're saying. It's difficult, especially when it's like a meeting that you're just like, this could have been accomplished in like four bullet points. 
So one pro tip that I've learned is always try to keep a five minute buffer in between meetings. So end meetings mm-hmm. at, you know, 55 till and not on the hour. Exactly. I agree. At least five to 10 minutes. Yeah. yeah. I tried like at least 30 minutes, but I need to decompress a little bit more. And whenever there's a meeting that, that runs on and I, you know, show up a minute late, I'm just completely frazzled. So I'm learning that I just have to not do that. Yeah, that's a good, that's a good point. Ted switch, sometime you have to pee. There you go. You know, there are times where like, I have, like, if I'm feeling like that, I've actually like walked out of it, like excuse myself from a meeting, go to the restroom, like pee, wash my hands, stand there. And then like, just to decompress and then go back. You know what I mean? Oh, totally. Like, yeah, I do that. One thing I have learned that may be helpful to other people is if in, if you're in that situation where you sort of forgot what you're doing and you're trying to pick up the pieces, stop and take the time to actually remember and don't just try to muddle through it. It'll only end up worse. Yep. That's oh, yeah. It's like, like it's like in public speaking. Mm. It's fine to like pause and be silent for a little while. It's much better than saying, um, or using filler words. Yeah, so I mean, there have been meetings where I come in like a minute later because I just got out of a meeting and it was late and everyone was stressed out. And I just have to say, look, I need to take three minutes to review my notes and and then we can get started. And I'm, you know, apologize. But if I don't do that, if I just try to build the bridge as I'm, you know, crossing the river, that, you know, that kind of thing, it is a disaster. Yep, agree. That's a good point. So one thing that I was thinking about is, A lot of the times when we are building out like automation systems, we sort of think of ourselves as the part of the system that's in control. And what I'm sort of realizing with those systems where like the computer does a bunch of things and then it needs a human's help, you know, like a human needs to go look at this dashboard or a human needs to make a decision that it's better to think of it as that the automation system is the thing in command and the human is just a decision point. Because then for, I think for a variety of reasons, it helps prevent the human from having to feel like they have to own the entire process and it lets you know it lets the person just take an action and then go back to you know go back to their day. Exactly. And a perfect example of that is like um so identity and access management, it's uh it encompasses like you know when you start a new job and you have to get your like login and your email set up and all that stuff. It's that process. Back in the day, people would like manually, so you would have like a help desk or system administrator manually like set up your credentials and, you know, maybe get a ticket from like the help desk ticketing system and then close it and do, you know, get an email approval and all that stuff. So when I say onboarding, automated onboarding, it's um, leveraging like systems APIs and, and saying, okay, when I click on, when I enter these details and I click this submit, what's going to happen is that the system, right, will automatically go, really a service account in the system, will autom- automatically go to system A, create the credentials using the information that, that it has, and then it's going to pass an email, right, or a notification to the approver listed based on some tables and this complexity um, and say, hey, Jane Smith, is it okay for Bob to have access? And Jane just says, sure. She just clicks on a button that says yes, right? Or no. And that either lets the workflow continue or stops the workflow in its track. So Jane doesn't really have to type anything in. There's like a stopping point where her interaction is necessary. So the process is still automated, but, you know, you still need human interaction. Yeah, this is this is really cool because I think it ties in a little bit to multitasking, context switching, and how do you present the context you need to make a decision or to switch on to a new task as efficiently as possible? Yeah, and I, and I think that one of the things, one of the tactics that I use or one of the techniques that I use is asking it in the form of a question. So if I say, what do I need Jane Smith to do, Right. Like, what is her involvement? Okay, I, Jane, I need you to approve this person having access to this resource. We're, we're literally talking about user experience design here. We're talking about yeah. what does Jane need as a user to do Jane's job? What what should right. their experience be of doing this, of exactly. performing this task? Exactly. I never knew that it was that. That's a, see, that's damn. Maybe I should add that to my uh so my bio, no, I'm just kidding. Nice. So, so this is, uh, this is, this falls into my everything is UI philosophy. So I'm happy about that. Good. Glad I can make you happy. 
See, I've been thinking about this like a chain of decision-making functions. So for each decision I need to make, I've got inputs for that decision. And I, I may need to do some tasks in order to create these inputs that go into that decision I have to make. And when I decide something, then I end up with these outputs and I need to make sense of those outputs. And so I, I sort of think of this workflow of decision-making functions. And you're basically designing this workflow system based on breaking down all these human, you know, component parts and stuff. I mean, it's just brilliant insight. I'm really loving this. Right. It can get really complicated quickly, or it can look super simple. Like when we place an order, you know, like on, on I don't know, let's say you order a pair of sneakers on Nike.com right? I'm sure it's not that easy for them. Like it looks so easy for us. The process is super simple. You pick your size, you add to cart, you check out, you put, you know, input your credit card or your PayPal, whatever. And then you, your order is done. Voila, magic, right? But imagine the processes that are happening in the background that we never see where, you know, the warehouse gets a notification, whatever, whatever it takes away from their inventory. It's just amazing. It's, it's, it's so fascinating. Oh, have you ever bought custom sneakers from Nike.com? They're so awesome. I've got a pair of chucks with like stars on one side and like stripes on the inside. And it's a really impressive UI. Yeah, no, I haven't. But see, now I'm going to have to. I actually ordered a pair of custom sneakers for my husband and he really liked them. So talking about all of these workflows and decision points and all of that reminds me a lot of state machines. And one thing that I've noticed is that whenever you're building out an, a workflow like this, where there are decision points and you have to choose a path and then based on where you are, choose another path and things like that, often we just do it in an implicit way where we don't model the state machine. We just think about the decision decisions that we have to make sort of in detail. And one of the things that I've found extremely helpful is to just draw out a flowchart, draw out a state machine, look at it, share that. Make sure everyone agrees that this is indeed the, the process we're modeling and the, and the mental model we want to have of it. I like that. I love flowcharts, by the way, especially when you're building these processes. Like, I love flowcharts. I, I, I feel like I'm, I'm a visual person, so I kind of like to see so that I can better understand how things flow from top to bottom or, you know, end to end. So I think that's a brilliant, brilliant recommendation. And you can do things, you can make this really useful. So we have like at work, we have an onboarding process for a new customer. And for that, the flowchart has points where we color it based on like, this is a thing a customer needs to do. So it's blue. This is a thing engineering needs to do. So it's green. Yes. Love and that. then there's this implicit arrow from every shape in that flowchart that says, in case of failure, contact a human. Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I need to take a flow charting class. So it's interesting for me. One of the sort of overall topics so far has been how can we present information so that humans can gain context well? So like the color coding there just means that you can look at the flow chart and see more in five seconds than you could have otherwise. Oh, oh I have a question about your experience. Mm -hmm. One thing you mentioned that's something that helps you with your multitasking of doing entirely too many things is letting yourself not accomplish everything that you hope to that day. And specifically, you said not feel like you're a bad person for that. Or was it what What was your phrase? Yeah, is it not feeling like you're a failure? Yeah. Yeah, no, I mean, I think we're extremely hard on ourselves. Um, I know I am personally. And, you know, I feel like I'm supposed to be doing a lot without taking into consideration, like just things that happen that are out of my control. You know, if one of my children are sick or something, you know, whatever, like the monkey wrench days. And then I feel just like I, I catch myself, you know, or I found myself feeling like such a failure, like, oh my God, I didn't do everything that's on my list. And I'm just like, now I have more work to do. So I've been really intentional about kind of giving myself uh, that break or that that flexibility to say like, Hey, listen, I didn't do it today. It's fine. You know, I didn't die. The world didn't end. I can't get it done tomorrow. Right. Like let it go. And it's worked. It's actually working. Right. Because I'm, I'm giving myself that room to maybe say, Hey, you know what? I'm not going to do A, B, and C because I need to focus on 
you know, this task at work, or I want to get ahead, you know, of my schedule or ahead of the, you know, ahead with this work or this project that I have. So I'm going to focus on it for two days and pick other things up in three days. And that's okay. Oh, that's another thing. So you're, you're deliberately choosing things not to do. Yes, I have. A couple of years ago, a friend, a friend of mine and I, we started Women of Color in Tech Chat. Um, and we started it as a Twitter chat. We initially did it because we felt that we didn't see representation in tech, right? We didn't see like this visual representation of people that who look like us. We're both from New York City. Our family, we're for, both first generation. Our families are from the Dominican Republic. And we both, you know, are educated and we both have careers in technology. Um, and so we started on this journey. And out of that, you know, came the idea for the Women of Color in Tech stock photo shoot project and all of that. So with that, you know, that kind of took a life of its own. We started getting a lot of calls from like journalists and to appear in like newspapers, magazines, all that other stuff. So at that point, I felt like, oh, I needed to do this. I needed to kind of like jump into the game full force and attend as many events as possible and say yes to as many panels as possible and do all the interviews and respond to every email. Well, what happened was at the time my job sucked. And so I got burnt out, extremely burnt out. And I just could not function. Like I just was done. So last year was a really difficult year for me. And so this year, at the beginning of the year, not really New Year's resolution, but at the beginning of the year, I said, okay, Christina, this year you're going to get a new job and you need to focus on you, right? So you need to shift your mindset from the say yes mindset to when you say no, you're actually saying yes to yourself, right? Uh, Because I felt a lot of guilt. I felt like I needed to help people and mentor people that reached out to me for mentorship. Like that was my duty, right? And so I started to say no. And I decided I got it. I got the job, my current company. And I said, well, I really need to focus. I really need to get this. I re- it's a great opportunity. It's my dream job. Uh, my dream come true. And it just worked out remote position. I was like, this is beautiful. It's perfect. It's everything I wanted. So don't mess it up. I just started to say no. And I didn't want my plate to be full with external things. And it's worked out great. I've been able to focus on my job, focus on my family, and that's it, you know, and I, I just said this year is about you. And also, you know, considering all the things that are happening outside, like our current political climate, the world is like falling apart. I didn't want to add that like other just that heavy burden, but it's been great so far. I mean, it's it's working and I think it's super important. I mean, I know everyone is like, say yes, say yes to opportunity. But I'm like, no, not if it's gonna cost me my sanity and my my peace of mind. I rather I'd rather be the snail, you know, slow and steady. Man, there are so many good things in there. Yeah. It Thank sounds you. like you had a time when the thing to do is default to yes and yes. let more things into your world. And then you reached a time when the thing to do was start saying no so that you could grow the things that were already in your world and most important. And most important. Right. Exactly. Exactly. And just inching back slowly, like being very... I want to use the word strategic, but I feel like that word sounds a little bit cold. Oh, but it is. And somebody tweeted the other day that I'll know that that's your strategy when you tell me what you are not doing. Right. You know, I think it's really easy to get caught up, especially if like you're on social media and you're like in tech and everything. And it's like you think so many people are doing so much and you feel like you have to be part of this community and all that. It's really easy to get caught up into that whirlwind of stuff, right? And it's easy to forget what it is that you really want to do. Like, what is it that you love doing? What do you feel like doing? Do you feel like working on a side project? Do you feel like contributing to open source? Like, it's okay to say no, like, it's fine. Like, but, you know, if you're on social media and you're part of the tech ecosystem, it's not fine. You, you, like, just society pushes you towards like, this is what you need to do to build your skill set. This is what you need to do. Well, guess what? If I don't feel like it, I don't feel like it. You know, I attribute that, that attitude to like being from New York city. We don't like to be pushed around or bossed or, you know, bossed around. So we like kind of push back a little bit. So I think it's serving me greatly right now because I, I needed that. 
I feel like there's so many people that need that. <laughs> like I'm sitting here thinking of how many times the story has like probably echoed through time of getting to the point where you're just, you know, completely overwhelmed and completely breaking. And then you see somebody that needs your help and you're like, I have to help them. I have to yeah. get involved. I have to contribute my opinion. These, the, you know, I'm needed in so many ways. And if I go away, then I'll feel bad. If I say no, I'll feel bad. And so you know, you push yourself all the way to the breaking point. And then it's like, all right, I, I got to hit the reset button here. And that it's actually a self-loving thing to do mm -hmm. to say yeah. no and getting to the point of pushing back and saying no. And anyway, I'm just, I'm sitting here just like glowing as I'm listening to you of all these things you're saying that just make me so happy to hear. I heard a really good watch it. Yeah. I was listening to this audio book not tech related, but uh, it's from an actress. Her name is Gabrielle Union. Uh, sometimes I like to kind of like listen and do other things, like do things like take Japanese lessons and do other things to take me out of the box, right? Like free my mind. And so listening to her audiobook, she she said something that really resonated. And she said, people don't know what to do with you if you are not trying to assimilate, right? And I thought that was like such a great quote. Because I find myself this year has been the year of me pushing back and saying, I'm not going to assimilate. I'm not going to do what people expect. You know, I'm not going to be that like hacker with the black hoodie just because you think that's what a hacker with the black hoodie looks like. And it's okay if I get that pushback. Like, it's okay if nobody wants to be my friend, right? It's okay if I'm out here in the world because I feel like it's, it's, it's so much about quality over quantity. So if I have at least one friend that appreciates who I am and what I bring to the table, I'm good. That's all I need. I'm okay. And if I have none or if Twitter doesn't love me or if I don't have followers, I don't care about that. Like That's not important to me. But the five followers that engage with me are super important to me. Right. So kind of like in that context. Can I just mention, I, so this is a journey that I've definitely been on uh, as well. And there are a couple of things I mean, so much of what you're talking about resonates with me, but there are a couple of things that I've found to be really helpful. One of them is making sure that all of the work you do do is visible, especially to yourself, because you may not always get all the stuff done that you want to, but you should be able to look back and see what you did accomplish Yes. and not have it hidden. So that's why on our, on our teams, we have a rule that if you're working on something, that there has to be a story for it, because we want to make sure that all of the work that people are doing is acknowledged. You know, that's an that's that's an interesting point and it's it's great that you brought that up because I find that it's for some of us it's really difficult to like pat ourselves on the back. I know that's something that's that I struggle with. I feel like there's a thin line between the patting yourself on the back and boasting. And like it's really, really hard for me. It's really hard for me to kind of acknowledge out loud what I've done or what I've contributed or how far I've come. Um and then there are moments where I I remember like just something kind of like, you know, jumps in my head, like that thought. And I'm like, wow, I've really done a lot. Like I should be proud of myself. Like I'm the woman, you know, I think I should do that more often. So, I mean, I guess what, how do you pat yourself on the back without feeling like you're not humble? Right. Like just, I don't know if that makes sense. Yeah, but. no, it does. But that brings me to my next point, which is get someone else to do it for you. <laughs> We try really, really hard to have a culture of acknowledgement where we don't just say, hey, you did a thing. Thank you. We try to say you did a thing and it helped me. For instance, I had too much work on my plate last week and I was able to delegate some of it to uh, someone else on my team and they did it better than I would have in the first place. And I thank them and I said specifically, you know, I wanted to thank you because you really made my week better and I was able to focus on other things that I had to do. And I don't think I would have been able to do it without you. So intentionally trying to create a culture where you thank people for the work they do eventually comes back to you is what I agree. Agree. And I find it easier to acknowledge and thank other people. I agree. I, I, I definitely agree with that. I like that. I like that reminder. It's like a gratitude culture, basically. Yeah. And I, I love that brain because it explicitly acknowledges the generativity in what the other person did. Right. It, and you're it, kind it, of like filling both your cups, right? Yeah, it raises the level of output of the whole team. Because it's not just about what you did. It's about how what you did helped everybody else do stuff too. Exactly. 
Yeah, and that's why exactly. I, I try not to just say thank you. I try to be specific about what it meant to me. Yeah. On the flip side, working as part of a team, like I always try to think not what would help me out, but what would help the team. So not like, oh, I need to do this because this is going to help me get promoted. No, like think, like put the team first. Like I think what would make our lives easier? Like what are the low hanging fruits or what is like our biggest pain point, right? It could be like creating a document or um, maybe automating something or creating uh, a landing page for us to whatever, creating a new SharePoint site. So something that would make our lives collectively easier. (laughs) So I try to think from that perspective, mostly, you know, I, I think we tend to do that, especially women. I feel like we always... I mean, men too, but I feel like women, we always put others before us. So that can be good and bad, but I try to like take the good from it. Yeah, yeah. We have have words for that. Um, It's congressive and ingressive. Ingressive Mm -hmm. as advancing yourself and congressive as doing things together, advancing the group. Love that. I've just been listening to this and so much beautiful stuff has come out of this this conversation. And and there's one thing that you said that really struck me of just a story of my life is that people don't know what to do with you if you're not trying to assimilate. Mm. And I never fit in like my whole life and like struggled with loneliness and trying to do things for people so that they would like me so they would love me and give me that feedback, give me that gratitude. Like I was trying to earn their affection so that I could be seen. And I feel like that's where a lot of that, a lot of that pull comes from of not wanting to say no, because it's like, we need that, we need that love. We need to be seen. We need to like, feel like we matter and being invisible and stuff is, is hard. But at the same time, like eventually I got to the point of just having this like rebellious energy of, I don't care anymore. I'm going to say no, I'm going to do what I want. You know, I'm going to be who I want to be and screw y'all. (laughs) And there's a balance between things because I basically shifted to that mode like 15 years ago. And like, I recently got to the point in that kind of mode where I ran all the way off the cliff (laughs) Mm -hmm. with, with essentially being kind of an antibody response almost to my former self. Cause I turned into like this table flipper rebellious energy. I'm going to go do things my own way. (laughs) And there's a balance in that though. And I feel like if you can create this, like, gratitude culture as a precedent of like filling the the love tanks of the people you know it's like it takes love energy to do our jobs and you know even though it's not something that's necessarily easy to measure or to put metrics around wow does it ever matter yeah yeah it it absolutely does and I think that that's just like part of being human Um, I think we all crave like even if we say we don't, we all crave like attention and validation. And and like you mentioned, feeling like we do matter. But I think it's important to understand that when you're feeling that you don't matter and you're feeling like <clears throat> a little bit sad about that, it's important to catch yourself, right? Feeding this, this way and acknowledging and saying, yes, I feel this way, right? But then countering it and saying like, you know, I do matter. I am important and my voice does matter, right? Because that's what I've noticed. And I've noticed that like, Similar to you, I also catch myself and and catch myself like saying like, why do I care if that person doesn't see me? Like why? Like I try to drill down. Like why is this important to me? Why isn't what I feel for myself enough? Why do I need external validation? Like how does that change who I am? Like right and like so I started to ask myself these questions because all my youth, like I was driven by the same thing, right? Like it was important to me. What other people thought of me was important. And I think with age and as I got older, I started to say, listen, I don't have any, I don't have time for this. Like, you know, and I started to value the close relationships that I did, that I did have, that I do have with people and know that, okay, well, these people love me. If only two people love me, like my husband and my kids, (laughs) I'm fine with that, you know? But I think it starts with like a lot of introspection and feeling like, You have to feel that you have to feel that, you know what? My voice does matter. I don't care what you say. Like, you know, I matter. I'm important, you know, to myself. And that's really all there is to it. So, yeah. And I think that like, you know, even with social media and just like the internet now, it really exploits our like psychological weaknesses. 
Um, and they knew that when they did it, uh, you know, with just like the val- all the validation that that is part of like just social media in general, right? Likes, loves, favorites, retweets. Yeah, they're, tweets. they're giant, awful Skinner boxes. Yeah, exactly. And they're I what? Think that Wait, they're what? Skinner boxes. So the uh, you teach a monkey to press a button and get food, that kind of thing. Yeah, I knew you were going to bring psychology into this somewhere. <laughs> Oops. <laughs> No, that's, that's a rain theme. No. <laughs> An important one. Uh, yeah, I, I call those puffs. Those like little puffs that like push you up just a tiny bit. Mm-hmm. But they come from strangers. So they're not really that deep, but you can get dependent on them. Yeah, it's an addiction. You become addicted. Even the like swipe down to refresh or pull down to refresh. It's like there was a really good Wired article that I read a couple weeks ago about the engineers who actually created all of these features wanting no parts of any of it, right? Like pretty much going like off the grid, you know, like uh, hacking their phone so that they couldn't download any social media application onto their phones, just like crazy stuff. And like, these are the engineers that created these features. Like, again, these are the engineers that created these features and they see the damaging effects anyone who studied like endorphin levels while people's tweets are being liked you know there should i wonder that's that's a good point i'm sure there are they probably won't talk about it but and if there there isn't there should be it's addiction it's addictive <laughs> just it's like an addiction hold on i'm googling that it's actually pretty fascinating though what did you call it the what box the skinner box skinner box yeah it's actually pretty fascinating, like, I guess from a psychological perspective, like, the, I mean, I don't know anything about psychology, I'm, you know, I, but it's, it's, um, I would be interested in reading about, uh, reading more about, like, the techniques they use to convince us to do this stuff <laughs> or convince us to, like, stay on our phones for, like, two hours straight, just refreshing. The okay. technical term is operant conditioning chamber. Hmm. Oh, oh! I learned that word the other day. Operant conditioning. Yeah, it's when you like get trained that you do one thing and another thing follows. Yeah, it's basically training or learning through reward and punishment. Hmm. That's very boring compared to learning through creativity. So, like Skinner is operant, like push a button, get food. Classical is like the Pavlov response where you mm-hmm. learn to associate the ringing of a bell with food, even though you are not being rewarded for ringing a bell. Oh, it's just like correlation. This happens, then this happens. Yeah. So basically the bell is a neutral uh, stimulus that is then associated with something positive through correlation. So that would be like whoop, notification sounds. Yes. Yeah. So and then the you start to salivate is, because, is, is a, because it's going to be so tasty. Thing. Yeah, for sure. For sure. Yeah, or, or wake up. I hear doot doot in the middle of the night at 3 a.m. And I go, oh, a message. A message is going to be great. I'm- yes. No, yes, Jess, go back to classically sleep. Just go. Yeah, no, that's why you need to turn all notifications off all the time. Yeah, I, I, I totally do. I just forgot last night. But I succeeded. I did not look at it. And it was a good thing because in the morning when I did look at it, it said, oh, sorry, that wasn't for you. <laughs> I'm so glad I didn't get on the three. <laughs> okay, okay, okay. Okay, so it's, it's dopamine. I was almost right. Ah, ah, yes. This might that be a good sense. time to tell you that this episode is brought to you by Upside, one of DC's <laughs> fastest growing tech startups. Oh, Upside is looking for innovative engineers who want to disrupt the norm, and they're always hiring. Check out Upside.com slash team to learn more. I'm sorry. That was amazing. <laughs> that was. I love doing commercials. <laughs> So this brings us to Reflections, the part of the show where we reflect on things, which is why it's called Reflections. Huh? See? Huh? (laughs) Sorry. So I think mine is really everything you're saying about being self-aware of how much is on your plate, how you're feeling about it, and then being able to say no and how that's really saying yes to what you want to do and what you want to spend time on and how you want to live your life. That's huge. And that's something that I really need to spend more time working on in my own life. 
Great. So many amazing, beautiful things in the show. I've just been sitting here blown away. I know I keep saying that, but so many insights and things that just resonate with a lot of the struggles in my life. And I'm really excited to share this with everyone because I'm just like sitting here going, man, everybody needs to hear this. So that's pretty amazing. Uh, One of the things that struck me that I haven't gone and got all excited about already was your comment about taking the time to remember and that remembering takes time. And that, you know, we talked about like setting up buffers between meetings and how long of a buffer do I actually need? And if I've got inputs that I need to be prepared for, how long does it take me to to prep those inputs? And if I need to, you know, spend time thinking about that, don't just rush ahead and start doing it. Even if you're kind of running behind, take the time to stop and think because it's only going to get worse. And that remembering that thinking takes time. And the way that you manage your workflow with these human processes, it's like there's this implicit undercurrent realization of thought work itself. Like what is what is the thinking that needs to happen in order to get through this process? And then once you have your process flow down, your workflow of your thought work, then you can figure out how to automate various pieces of it. But first, just see it. First, just understand the problem you're trying to solve. That was just beautiful. Awesome. I love how this episode started talking about multitasking and Christina described how she's good at doing a lot of things. And then it got to talking about how she's good at doing fewer things. And there's a time for inviting everything in. And there's a time for when you choose the group that you're going to focus on. Because, I mean, it feels selfish to say no, right? But really, Christina isn't saying, I'm not going to help anyone. This is about me. She's saying, I'm going to help my group at work and my family and a few other specific people who are actually meaningful to me instead of trying to help everybody a little bit in the way that they think I'm good for. So it's about choosing the group that you're being generative with and taking responsibility for your life and how you want to run it. Yeah. Yeah. And it's still congressive. It's not about advancing her. It's about advancing people, but we can more effectively advance people when we're not trying to advance everybody in the world who asks for mentorship or anything else. Just a reminder that you can't pour from an empty cup. Yeah. So you matter. I mean, especially, I mean, as a mother, that's something that's totally part of my philosophy of, look, I have to be happy in order to keep you happy. So yes, I'm going to travel one week a month. I know it's not your preference, but trust me, all of our worlds are better this way. Exactly. One thing that stood out was that, um, you know, Rain mentioned like UX. And I feel like I often forget that UX is everything and everywhere. Like I feel like it, it becomes transparent to those of us that are not looking. But when you really think about it, the user experience is everything, no matter what you have or no matter what fancy tech is, you know, working behind the scenes. If the user experience isn't there, nothing is going to work pretty much. So that was a good, you know, that was a good reminder to kind of keep that top of mind all the time. There's a uh, quote that I like to drop every time this comes up, and I wish I could remember who it's by. But the quote is that a computer to the people using it is not the hard drive or power system or anything like that. It's the monitor and the keyboard and the mouse. That's what it means to use a computer. Those are the representations that we interact with. Right. No, all that other stuff is not the interface. The interface, what it means to be a computer right in terms of how you interact with one is that you it has a monitor and a keyboard and a mouse everything else is just an implementation detail yep this was so much fun christina you are a beautiful human i've really yeah. enjoyed this discussion it just <laughs> brought me so much happiness seeing you talk about just these core things that matter of just about light and love and taking responsibility for being a happy whole human is what I get out of this show. I feel like I'm a work in progress. I'm, you know, I'm not, I'm not a all energy producing every day, but you know, again, that's, that's okay. It's part of growing and learning, I guess, you know, just kind of discovering. I think it's important to just stay open, you know, at all times, like stay open 
from you know from a mental perspective like stay open to different ideas on what makes you happy basically right or or, or what makes you feel good because sometimes you have to do things that don't necessarily make you happy like wake up very early in the morning um but yeah just on what makes you feel good and if something doesn't make you feel good then you have to remove it from the equation I kind of want to do another reflection now just so I can name Drop Chomsky and make Jessica happy. <laughs> Yay, philosophers. <laughs> I totally make fun of you, but I actually really like that you bring like philosophy and, and all these non-tech references into the discussion. <laughs> so we were talking about Skinner. And so Skinner's idea on sort of human agency was that much more is determined by the environment than by human agency. So in terms of like our ability to create the environment around us, Skinner thought that that was mostly just the environment acting on us rather than the other way around. And uh, when Noam Chomsky, who I may have mentioned a couple times, reviewed uh, Skinner's book about verbal behavior, his argument was that if you look at how children learn language, the pace at which children learn language far outstrips their actual experience of language. He called it the uh, lexical explosion. And I think that this is a phenomenon that doesn't happen just in language acquisition. If you look at human capacity, I think in general, it far outstrips the mere sort of behavioral concerns of what in the environment has impinged on us and sort of we, you know, we as humans, our capacity far outstrips just the learning, our learning histories. And that's really interesting to me. Lexical explosion. That should have been the name for the podcast I'm now realizing. (laughs) <laughs> ooh, ooh, can we use it as our fake name next episode <laughs> yes yes welcome to lexical explosion that's gonna be great christina thank you so much for being our guest today yay thank you thanks for having me this was a lot of fun if you just can't get enough of greater than code then donate any amount to our patreon because we're mostly listener supported and then you can join us on slack and it's my favorite slack it's the only one besides my work slack that i totally check all day long because people there are so nice and the discussions are really great and it's a wonderful place to ask hard questions that you're not sure where to ask the end